Hi there, this is Ricardo Silvestre. I'm back with another episode of the Liberal Europe podcast in lockdown, European Liberal Forum project, where we tackle some of the main issues for the European Union right now as we go through this crisis with the COVID-19 pandemic. And today I'll be talking with Alina Kutsko. Alina is director of the Globsec Policy Institute, a think tank based in Bratislava. And we go into two key details now as we recover from the pandemic. One is how to prepare for a second wave, particularly with testing. How can we centralize that process in the European Union? And then on a second topic, how can we use the European Green Deal as a linchpin for economic recovery plans for the economies of the member states in the European Union. So with no further ado, I bring you Elena Kutsko. I'm here with Elena Kutsko. Elena, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for inviting me. Now, I'm very happy that you're here because I saw you during the webinar Liberties in Lockdown, Business with New Borders, and you brought up to the discussion a couple of points that I thought were really, really important, and I really would like to extend that conversation with you. And one of them had to do with testing, because now uh, the European uh, Union, it's using the strategy of giving recommendations, and those recommendations are regarded to context in national strategies, which makes sense because countries are going through this process at different speeds. And this has been proposed by uh, the Commissioner for Health and Food Safety and also for Research, Culture, Entertainment and Youth. But you went a little further and you suggesting during that webinar that the European Union should centralize the process of doing testing, which open up so many uh, avenues, and I want to go uh, through them with you. But first of all, tell us why you think that way. Right. Um, the important perspective that I wanted to start with is actually for us to understand that we're talking here both uh, in terms of the immediate exit of the current lockdown, but also we're talking about setting up the infrastructure for any future pandemics to come. Virologists pretty much agree that the current COVID-19 crisis is going to be with us for some time. We have to learn to exist with it, but also that the 21st century will be marked by pandemics. So everything that we're trying to do now is a good exercise in setting up the infrastructure so that the next crisis that is going to come will be much easier for us to go through. So definitely, as you mentioned, the testing is extremely important in the current environment when we're trying to exit the um, lockdowns that were introduced at the national levels by each individual countries. Uh, there are two dimensions definitely that European Commission is already doing and uh, can be doing more in the future, uh, given the time that, that it needs to spend in it. The first one, and this is the typical thing that the European Commission is very good at and it's been doing in other areas, is coordinating the regulatory measures. Mm -hmm. This sounds like very theoretical, but in fact, it's a very practical problem. For example, uh, the, if countries are going to rely on the mass testing, this is relatively easy, not easy, but it's much easier to do at the national level. But the much bigger challenge is 
forthcoming when we are talking about opening up the borders and ensuring that there is a freedom of movement in the European Union. What's happening in practice is that because the countries usually get their tests from different suppliers and this test are very uh, divergent in terms, in terms of the accuracy, uh, the, there is a discrepancy between what different countries consider the standards in accepting the test. And what's happening in practice, let's say if somebody from Poland wants to go to Germany and they bring a test from Poland, the Germans say, no, 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 uh, this test is not accurate enough for us to accept it, or we have no idea which test you're even using. And this was already, let's say, a problem at the Austrian-Slovak border, where lots of people who went to work in Austria were still, even if they had a test done in Austria, were still sent to quarantine in Slovakia regardless of the test. This issue is resolved now, but this is a very practical challenge that people are facing. This is why this EU-level coordination and standardization is very important if we're planning to open up the freedom of movements across the continents again. But uh, this is just one element, and this is concerning the traditional regulatory capacity of the European Union. Especially in a bit of a longer-run perspective, uh, there is a lot of space for creativity at the European level and designing mechanisms that are going to can be helping the countries in the future, not just with coordinating the testing, but uh, making the testing uh, faster and more efficient. I don't think, of course, that the EU Commission will ever have the capacity to do the test itself, simply because health policy is not the competency of the EU Commission. The doctors, they're like national doctors, they're not reporting directly to the Commission. That would be extremely inefficient if that went this way. But still, there are lots of things that the EU Commission can be doing or that can be coordinated at the European level. I'll give you a couple examples. We can think about creating something like mobile medical response groups that can reinforce national authorities in crisis situations. That would be really helpful in case there is a crisis and the national authorities simply do not have enough testing capacities immediately now. We can think about different models that already exist in other areas of the European Union and that uh, we've tried doing before. Take, for example, front. It's not substituting the national border authorities, but it helps a lot the national border authorities and it's an EU agency. Or if you look, for example, at the area of defense, um, there are troops that kind of belong to NATO or there are EU troops, but in fact, there are national troops, but we're just pulling them when the need comes. Similar thing can be done in terms of testing when, uh, or even the medical response when there is a crisis. Another thing that can be also done by the EU or at the European Union level is the creation of the strategic reserves of tests. Basically, EU would stockpile on tests that can be sent to respective countries in need when the next hotspot arises to ensure that the production is quick and we extinguish the next inflammation very quickly. Um, and more in the more strategic perspective, definitely what the EU can be doing, and also that concerns testing, is investment into the development and production of the tests in the European Union. What's been happening now is that not all countries have domestic capacity to produce them, and a lot of the tests were imported from uh, Asian countries, for example. So the countries that actually could produce them at home were at a huge advantage. Uh, so by investing into the uh, development of tests at the European 
uh, level uh, at the European soil, but also speed up significantly how much we can respond uh, uh, to the crisis in the future. You systemized um, in a very elegant fashion what needs to be done. Some, some it's being done already, like you mentioned, there are some criteria to do how to perform the tests, either to detect the virus, the virus or detect antibodies. There's also the call to um, create more equipment for not only testing, but as you mentioned, to be part of a reserve that it can move around in Europe to help countries as the uh, needs arise, which it's very interesting because, and I'm, I'm going to ask your opinion on that, this also could be a blueprint in the case when we have a vaccine or we have a treatment and that one was sponsored by the European Union or by the European Commission. Do you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Uh, there is a similar discussion with the vaccine because both the development and production of it will take some time. So there will be, by definition, a shortage, especially at the initial stages. And not all, uh, not all countries will have equal access to it. So the coordination at the EU level will significantly help to make sure that the uh, accessibility of vaccine is evenly distributed across the Union and also is sent to the places where uh, it's the most important to control the spread of the virus. One thing that you mentioned, and I want to go back to that, it's the difficulty to have to create a network with uh, health-related issues because of the differences between countries and the differences between ministries of health, surely. But I think all can agree that if at least there's a network of information that will be very, uh, very useful. And that is sharing of the information. For example, we don't even know yet what the coronavirus does fully, meaning that we have different symptoms. Those symptoms, they have more incidence in some areas than others. So that one would, would also help. And as you mentioned, between differences in countries that are close to each other, those differences can be detected and a more comprehensive uh, a panel can be developed. Instead, apart from that sharing of information, uh, what else can you see coming up from that uh, working together, that synergy of uh, the member states working for a centralized, if not testing, at least analysis of what has been done? The situation that you're describing is um it's a new because we're in the new environment of a health crisis, but in a way it's an old discussion about the, um, the importance of the data in the 21st century. Well, we had this discussion before the crisis, let's say with artificial intelligence, which goes along the lines that the countries that have more data definitely have an advantage in developing the capacity and uh, creating the new technologies and innovating. And of course, China is the case in point, but also the United States. And European Union was at the significant disadvantage because they didn't have this pooling mechanism of data because we uh, could not yet figure out how to combine it with our privacy. So definitely pooling these resources, which is the only way European Union as a whole can be competitive or even has a chance to develop uh, some kind of an understanding where we're now. Simply because if we fragment the uh, data by nation states, even the big states like Germany and France are still pretty small at the global level to uh, understand comprehensively the crisis. 
So in a way, this pooling of data is the only way to go to uh, create an analysis of what we're seeing here. And if we have this analysis, it gives us much better position in developing the responses, be it vaccine or economic measures about how to move forward. All right. We have um, just touched the surface of this topic and there will be so much more to talk about this now. But we're going to change gears a little bit because something else that you um, very passionately mentioned during that uh, discussion was the fact that we can use the European Green Deal to be an engine for uh, economic economic recovery of the European Union. Before we go into the details again, like I just asked you uh, regarding the testing, what made you bring that immediately to the forefront? Um, it's interesting that you use the word passionate uh, uh, about the green economy, because I do think that there are lots of people who are very passionate about the topic, and this is wonderful. My approach is uh, a more pragmatic. Mm. Uh, and that's why uh, it's great that people believe in this idea. That's what should be happening. But I also think that uh, the criticism and what lots of people are failing to see is that the Green Deal can deliver actually not just the passion, but a lot of very practical solutions and practical ways how to move forward and that it is not exacerbating some of the problems that we have. It actually can help us both in economic recoveries and addressing very specific, very material issues that we're facing today. All right. I, then I guess I confused your pragmatism for passion or maybe your passion it's for pragmatism. <laughs> Well, getting into detail now, uh, there are ways to make this thing happen from just just what is called just transition to the agri-food system, to training people on job skills, to uh, have private and public investment in companies and startups. How do we make this happen, in your opinion, then? Right. Definitely the... The, the, this discussion about the Green Deal is, again, is a discussion that we started before the uh, crisis, the health crisis hit us. And uh, uh, as before, the opinions about it are not that uniform. So there definitely were people who believed in it and still believe in it. But there are lots of, as, uh, lots of people or even countries who treat it a little bit more like a luxury and that we are focusing now on the more... Uh, urgent needs of the day, like making sure that people have jobs uh, or making sure that people have some kind of money to survive the current unemployment period and to survive the restructuring of the economies that are hit by the COVID crisis. Uh, I think actually now is a very good time to relaunch this discussion with much more enthusiasm and much more vision. Why I think so is because uh, we are going through a tremendous devastation right now. And devastation is extremely painful, uh, but sometimes it's easier when you start from a more or less clean slate. Like, for example, if you have your uh, house burned down, it's a really devastating situation. But sometimes in the longer run, you are better off because you can spend the money on building a new one that is modern, that is contemporary, that uh, responds to all your needs. If you have the old house that you're just trying to patch all the time, you're ending up spending as much money, but you still end up with an old, very dysfunctioning house. 
So I think this current disruption that the COVID-19 is bringing is uh, accelerating the dying out of the old industries. And it would be wise for us to invest this money into creating something that is going to be functioning not just tomorrow or next year or in two years, but in five, 10 and 15 years. Definitely, um, and I guess your question goes more into the criticisms that people have about it, mainly uh, that uh, uh, it's uh, wonderful to talk about the future, but people need the jobs now. I do think that there is a great potential to actually generate the jobs connected to the transfer, green transformation, not just in the long run, but also in the short run. And I will try to bring up a couple examples. Uh, for example, if you are talking about the green transition, usually it's not that this transition is happening overnight and that you can even physically start working on it tomorrow. There's, uh, as in any process, there is a long planning stage, a long preparatory planning stage, a lot of discussion about adjusting the bureaucracy, about creating capacity of the national administration. All these things can be done already now, and the beauty of it, they can be done remotely. There's going to be plenty of people who are be willing to be desk workers who are working on the preparatory stage, who are adjusting the bureaucracy, who are working for national administrations, developing capacity. But of course, uh, all these will create the grounds for us to start with the green transition and the physical implementation of it as soon as the physical situation allows. For another example, uh, people are saying, talking about job creation, let's say in the infrastructure projects, but we can do the same infrastructure projects and the job creation uh, if uh, people do some jobs, the difference is that we'll just make sure that the green, green element is present there. Definitely, uh, and this is the contentious point that was there also before the crisis, is the even distribution of the preparedness of the economies and societies to the green transition across the European Union. So they will for sure, uh, as before, and uh, the same situation would be now, is that we need to make sure that our policies, uh, including the green policies or any other recovery policies, is not the exist, is not exacerbating the divisions that we have, but helps to heal these divisions. For example, let's say if a certain area, let's say Central Europe, is not uh, well prepared for the transition, definitely there should be some kind of an affirmative action, which means that there should be uh, funding dedicated to uh, particular geographic regions to also make sure that they're not just uh, ready with the infrastructure projects, but they also start developing their own research and development capacities and other areas associated with the whole network and the whole complex of everything green. One thing that I, I was taking, uh, I was interested in what you just mentioned, and that is there could be a shift even a societal one, a cultural one, with this shock that we're going through right now, shock to the system using a very famous expression. And we're, we've been seeing some reactions already, like changing on transportation grids in cities, even how the city can function, like, for example, taking cars out of the streets and expanding, uh, particularly here in Lisbon, we're talking about that, expanding outdoor cafes to take over the city so that there be distance between people that, of course, will mean that the cars will have to get out of, this, of the cities and with less pollution or, for example, changing on the work setting. People 
are getting the experience of working at home. A lot of people are saying that this could be a solution instead of people getting out of their houses. If they want to, they can stay at home and that again affect pollution and affect traffic and so on and so forth. So to get back to my point, and if I understood correctly what you were saying, you think that there could be a critical mass where the discussion about the European Green Deal will run parallel to this kind of observations that we're seeing at a societal level. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I do think that uh, this mass of people who believe in the green transformation is uh, big enough to start also the conversation and uh, uh, convince actually the other part that there is a sensible set of measures that will make sure that the green transformation is very pragmatic. Uh, but also it's not uh, damaging the interests of the people who are not necessarily the biggest believers in it just yet. In, in, indeed. One thing that you also mentioned, and that is some countries are going at different speeds on this kind of not only transformation, but probably public debate and political will, because some countries will still be depending on energy sources that are polluting. Again, in the same kind of question, do you think that uh, we can see a more of a collective response or you do you see that there still be countries that say, hey, our economies are not competitive to transition to green uh, energy. It's going to take us a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of people that don't have a job. The economy, it's not going to be going to be as competitive. Or again, with solidarity between member states, we can make this happen. I, I think both, because definitely this discussion will be there because nothing has changed. The economies haven't become suddenly more competitive. So this discussion will continue. Uh, but also what's important is that solidarity will have to go both mm -hmm. ways. Let's say if countries uh, are helping the countries that... Uh, suffer the most from the effects of the corona crisis, definitely there will be a flow of solidarity in the opposite direction as well. Uh, I think also what helps in the current environment is that, uh, uh, yes, on the one hand, we are all a little bit nationalistic now from the point of view that everybody became very introverted. We looked for national solutions. We just didn't know what to do and how to address this crisis otherwise. But I also think that Politically, there might be actually a very good environment right now to promote some of the ideas. If you look at the approval ratings of many political leaders in the European Union, they're actually historically at the highest level, yes. be it Merkel or Kurz or um, Sanchez or Conte, like they all enjoy huge massive popularity at home. So they do have space, but also the same goes to other countries, including the ones that not necessarily the biggest supporters of the Green Deal. But what it means is that all these political leaders have a lot of maneuvering space at home. Uh, and it's also up to each of them and to all of us to uh, use this political maneuvering space to also convince the domestic population that what is happening is also in the interest of everybody and is helping each particular country in the longer perspective. Alina, you're giving us the roadmap to uh, make a revolution, a green revolution in Europe. And I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. It's been a fantastic conversation. And as we're getting close to the end of the podcast today, but I would love to have you back so that we can continue 
Uh, tell us a little bit about what Globesec uh, does, what it's their mission, the work you guys do in Bratislava. Tell us a little bit and how can people follow your work? Thank you so much, Ricardo, for very nice words. It's my pleasure and honor to work with you and with the European Liberal Forum, and I'm definitely looking forward to continuing our cooperation. Globtech is a think tank that is based in Bratislava, but we're very international and very worldly. We're trying to bring in the perspectives of the regions that have not necessarily been on the front lines of the um, developments of the world but are becoming more more and more important now and we're trying to make sure that all voices are heard and that the ideas that are coming from various places on earth are heard because lots of these ideas are the great ones so what we are trying to do is to structure the conversation between different regions between various stakeholders from both public and private sectors to make sure that we develop the best ideas and find the way forward how to implement them we work in several areas. We started as a security-based, uh, security-focused organization primarily, but we've long expanded into covering the areas uh, like the European Union and European politics, uh, economic transformation of Europe and the world, transatlantic relations, the intersections between technology and society, and sustainability. We would be happy uh, if you followed us on Twitter or visited our website, but uh, we like working with partners. So if you have any ideas what we can do together, you're always welcome. Yes, and I'm going to put the links on the description of the podcasts, exactly how to uh, reach uh, the website and follow the Twitter account and also some uh, more work that Globsec is doing. Well, uh, Alina, this has been great. I wouldn't uh, be uh, in peace with myself if, if I didn't say here publicly that you have the most wonderful first name. Alina is such a beautiful name. Uh, so that I had to say here publicly. <laughs> and, Thank you very uh, much, I'm Ricardo. Gonna... I never realized this is such an asset. Now I know. No, well, it is, it is for me at least. Alina, it's such a wonderful name. And you guys do a wonderful work. And I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And like I mentioned, I hope to have you back so that we can continue to talk even more about ideas and solutions for a European Union. Thank you so much for your time, for the wonderful conversation. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>